Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. Welcome to Shifters Podcast. Today I have a very special guest, uh, Lisa Long. Uh, she's the former, or she's actually the, still the co-founder of uh, Six to Start, who made the gun uh, game um, Zombie Run, which is the most popular uh, fitness game on uh, App Store ever, right? Uh, yes, it's the world's largest fitness game in the world. That's, that's <laughs> so. very cool. Uh, you're also the former VP of Product Development and Innovation at uh, Telenor. And you used to be a product manager at Skype. And now you live in Oslo. Yes, I came here for the weather. So I like the skiing, the snow, all that is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and thanks to Spaces to, for letting, letting, let us record this uh, session here. And um, you have said that there is no product management in Norway. What do you actually mean by that? Yes, my controversial statement about that is that I find that compared to a place like London or Berlin or Silicon Valley... Um, there's not a long history of product management in Norway. Um, it's not something that's actually supported by the industries uh, because traditionally the industries in Norway have been much more about natural resources, so fishing or oil. So there hasn't been a manufacturing base like there had been in England or in the United States or Canada, which would have led people to actually understand kind of the life cycle of a product. Um, when you have oil, there's not much of a user interface going on there. I see. So, but but why why do you think that product management is that important, and how is that affecting Norwegian businesses today? So, product management is important because if you want to get away from having a natural resources type base where you're just pulling things out of the ground and selling it, then you have to have an understanding of what your customer is looking for. So, what are the kinds of problems that your customer has, and then what kinds of solutions can you provide to them? So, product management is. Uh, Per the definition of Marty Kagan, who is the godfather of all product management, he's from Silicon Valley <coughs> Product Group, and is XHP, X8, eBay, X Netscape. Um, his major definition is that a product is a product manager is responsible for finding a product that is valuable, usable, and feasible. And the point is that if you don't have a history where you've actually been looking towards the customers to find out what their problems are, it's very difficult for you to build an entire new economy on something where you're missing those people. So this is what's really important for Norway is to develop these product managers so they can get this skill set where people are going out, finding problems and figuring out ways to solve them. Yeah, so wasn't he the one who said that uh, the product manager is the CEO of the product? Happily, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> But I would actually like to take massive issue with that. So this is a very religious issue when it comes to product managers. There are those who believe that the product manager is the CEO of the product, and those of us who do not believe that the product manager is the CEO of the product. So uh, let me explain my stance in this religious issue for product managers. Um, 
The thing is with being a CEO uh, is that you actually have direct control over all your resources. So as a CEO, if you tell somebody to go do something um, short of insubordination, they will go do it. As a product manager, you have no power, none. You have no direct power. A lot of times what you have to do is actually most of the time you have to do everything through influence. So you have to convince people that what is happening or what you're seeing in the research or what's actually happening on the engineering side or what the um, business needs these things have to actually be a matter of convincing people and influence. So this is the big difference between being a CEO of a product where you have direct control and you can tell people to do whatever you need and being a product manager, which is, do you have the data to support the behavior or the decision that you're making? And in the times that you actually don't have the data to do it, what makes you feel that that's like going to be the right decision? What's what's the data that you've actually had from past, uh, either historical experience or comparable products that will allow you to kind of go that direction. So you have to convince through data. Convincing through data is clearly the best way to do this, um, because unfortunately there are far too many people. Um, There's a term for this called hippo, um, the highest paid person in the room. And the highest paid person's opinion is the one that drives the product in some cases. And this can be extremely damaging. Um, You can see companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars on things that don't work. Um, They're the History is littered with products that were somebody thought it was a really, really great idea and they spent a lot of money on this. Um, you could say things like the Microsoft Surface tablet. You could say purple ketchup from Heinz. Um, you could say uh, you know various car manufacturers. There's a, a number of products that have been put out there in the history where they didn't do enough research. They didn't understand what problem they were trying to solve. And so they spent a lot of money, a lot of time, and they wasted a lot of resources. But they still do, right? <laughs> they still do. And yeah. so this is a big problem. I think there's a lot of waste because people aren't paying attention to actually what the data is telling them um, and how they should actually build these products in a much more resource useful way. But why do I, I don't know if this is true, but um, I, I have a feeling that most products fail in some sort of way, like yeah. uh, most new products fail. <clears throat> but if you actually follow this, like follow the data and like, trying to know the customer, uh, why do they fail them? So is, the, is the, uh, the method wrong? So the idea behind actually following your customers and understanding their needs, so the first thing you have to do is actually talk to your customers. I think a lot of the products that fail, they never actually spent the time to talk to the customers to find out what problem they were solving. Sometimes what they have too is another problem is that sometimes the issue you're trying to solve isn't a big enough problem for your customers. So you may find that people really want to have monthly bill reminders, but the idea of them actually paying for a monthly bill reminder service is not really that valuable to them. So this is also something you have to find out. And this is what makes it difficult to be a product manager because you're not just saying, hey, am I solving somebody's problem? But are you solving the problem in a valuable way? Are you solving it in a way that's feasible? So if it costs you too much money to solve a problem um, and people aren't willing to pay more money than it costs to actually solve the problem in another way, again, but how, so how do you product. So how do you find this out before coding or before starting to build a product? You start talking to your customers. But is, 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 it, is it, but yeah, of course, <laughs> but is it actually possible to know for sure that you're actually building the right product? So the way you actually get to the right thing, actually, Kristen Gorman did a great speech on this about a month ago. And she said, you know what? There is no you know, trademark, the right thing. And the idea behind that is that what you have to do is iterate on the information you have, and you will learn with every iteration. So the idea is that in order, before you actually code something, before um, you start building things, the thing to do is actually start doing the research and make sure you understand the problem. Make sure you understand how your customers are working around that problem now. How do you make sure you understand the problem? 
you talk to your customers. And I know yeah. this sounds very, very like, yeah, repetitive. But you, but, you, but you can talk to your customers and even don't understanding what the problem... You, you, can, you can have your understanding of the problem, but you don't actually don't understand the problem. Correct. Right. So uh, there are great things called user research. And there's a woman named Erica Hall who wrote a fantastic book called Just Enough Research. And anyone who hasn't actually conducted proper user research, because you're right, there are lots of people who take their app, they show it to someone and say, don't you like my app? And that's the worst question possible you can ask someone. What you need to do is start asking them, okay, tell me about your day. How, how do you actually understand... Um, how their day works. And you need to ask questions that are open-ended and you need to not lead them. And it's very difficult. Um, this is a skill. There's a reason why people like go and they study for four years to be cultural anthropologists in university, because this is what teaches them how to ask these questions in an unbiased or as best they can unbiased way. And there are many things you have to actually pay attention to when you're doing your user research. So what's your body language like? Um, what kind of setting are you meeting them in? Are you meeting them in a setting that is actually something they're familiar with or they're unfamiliar with? How does that actually change the answers your customers are going to give you? Um, what's their perception of what's happening? So a lot of the research you have to do, it really has to be um, kind of trained. So you're right. Just talking to customers is not going to fix this. It's talking to customers in a structured way so that you can actually secure the information you need to understand how they perceive the problem. Um, there's a, so Erica Hall is a really good one. Also, Laura Klein is another uh, excellent author. Steve Portigal. They all have books that actually take people who are just learning or just understanding how to actually talk to customers. And they can give you some really good frameworks for you to actually use to be able to set up these questions, make sure that your questions are more open-ended. And then really what happens is just practice, lots and lots and lots of practice. And you know, you're know, you right, you may actually do some research, you pull out some themes, and then you realize, you know what, we looked that research wrong because we didn't understand what an underlying assumption was about that. And this typically happens in a lot of cross-cultural environments. So working for Telenor, we worked in Bangladesh and Pakistan and Thailand, Myanmar. And in all of those places, they have different kind of baseline rules about what women are supposed to do, what men are supposed to do, um, how old you are when you get married, how many kids you should have, um, what the expectation is for how you actually relate with your parents. Um, so to give you an example, there was a project that was done um, on education in Bangladesh. And the theory at the time was um, that they could, uh, the people who really influenced the education were the teachers. In doing some research, they actually found out that the teachers are an element of this, but the really important element was actually the parents. So the parents are the ones who are driving a lot of how the education was perceived and how it was um, executed and whether or not the kids necessarily got the resources for the education. And so it's uncovering these kinds of things that your assumption was, Hey, it must be the teachers. So let's go ahead and let's chase the teachers. Um, but then if you have to actually broaden your perspective and say, okay, well, we've only ever talked to the teachers, but if we talk to the students and ask them about how they actually have their information, or maybe we should talk to the parents of the students, or maybe we should talk to the school administrators. It's very different worlds that you have to understand. So when you're doing your customer research, you need to also understand the ecosystem. And I think this is what blinds a lot of people when they're doing their user research is that sometimes they come from that industry. And sometimes that's the worst person to be is if you come from that industry, because you think, no, 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 everybody knows that this is the way you're supposed to do this. And because it's that uh, traditional conventional wisdom that you think everybody thinks like you do, because of course you work in this industry, you're perfectly an expert in it. And you kind of need someone else to come in and question all of your assumptions. So that way you can understand well, what is this world that you've built and the in your head about how you're supposed to behave or how you're actually supposed to gather information or how people perceive things. So if you were a CEO of a company, you would actually use an external 
uh, interviewer or u- user researcher? Um, it's possible to do that. Um, it's also possible. So, you know, that's what NetLife does, I think, is they actually do um, user research for different companies. But you also can just take the fact of like, okay, who's somebody else who I know um, and talk to them and have them interview you to actually understand what your biases and assumptions are. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So um, uh, that's um, uh, the first part, like being a great product manager, I believe, that to actually find out what the problem is and and really finding out what the problem is, but then making sure that you actually have an important and big big enough problem to solve. Uh, So that's like step one, I believe. But then you actually have to make the product too. So what what are the uh, different types of traps you can go into doing that? So um, I think kind of like the three main things a product manager has to have, and this is kind of from Martin Erickson's, um, he's the founder of Mind the Product, uh, his model, which is essentially, he he has a diagram. So there's a circle for business, a circle for tech, and a circle for UX and design. And at the middle of that is where the product manager is. So well, kind of the first part of this is actually, you know, go out, do the user research, work with somebody who actually knows is an expert in user research, figure out what that problem is. Then the other sides of this have to come into place. So it's the tech and the business. So from a tech perspective is, is it feasible? Can you actually build this? Is the technology as it exists today a way for you to actually solve this problem? So for example, you could go out and do lots of research and find out that everybody wants hoverboards, but sadly the technology those freaking lazy engineers has not caught up to the fact where we can all have hoverboards. So it kind of fails at the tech test. So even if the customers want it, the technology may not be there to support what they want. The other side of this is the business side. So obviously you can make a solution for something and if it costs more than what people are willing to pay for it, then you know it's it's not a feasible product. It's not usable because no one's going to actually be willing to, you can't make a business out of this. And so these are the two elements that then come in play is that once you understand the problem, then you have to understand is, is there a reasonable way for us to fix this? And is that way sufficiently cost uh, efficient that we can actually sell this and maintain a business? <clears throat> so the traps people fall into when it actually comes to the feasibility is many times um, people are overly optimistic about how easy things are. Um, you know, the research shows that when you're actually trying to estimate something you've never built before, you're out typically by a factor of 2x, sometimes 4x. So all the people out there who are actually asking their engineers to give them time estimates for something the engineer has never built before, stop doing that. They can't tell you. And it's not that they're being mean. It's not that they're trying to hold out on you. It's that the engineers don't know because they haven't built it before. If they built it before, then chances are there's somebody who's made it really efficient. So this is why you buy somebody else's software or you uh, take in another library class or you look at an open source project and you pull somebody else's work in. So um, the time it takes to actually build something new is probably one of the biggest traps that people fall in. So one of the ways you can kind of um, get out of that trap is to actually try to build the smallest thing possible that has value. <clears throat> and so I know that the uh, the term of MVP has been bandied around a lot. Um, and I think that it's sadly become an excuse for people to make really, really crappy things. <laughs> um, and really, that's not the idea behind it. The idea behind it was you want to take a slice of value. You want to take a slice of something that somebody's like, you know what, I have this problem so badly. I would happily try to use this because my problem is so bad that right now my workarounds for it are, you know, they're fantastically horrible and I don't like doing them and it doesn't work for me. And I just want something to make it easier for me to do this. From the business side, I think the the trap people get into is that they want to spend um, like 
they either think, okay, we're going to under-resource this massively, and so we're going to try to be really clever and cheap on it, and the technology may not support that. You may have to spend $100 a sensor. Um, that'd be kind they of want to be lean, right? Yeah, they want to be lean, which is fine, but you need to give it enough resources. So if you under-resource something, people say, oh, it's great, they make them scrappy, etc. Um, that may work for certain problems, but not all problems. Um, the other thing you end up with in business is also you kind of have false metrics. So people say, well, as long as I can build this out for like a huge group of people, then we'll figure out later how we're going to actually make money off that. That's fine as long as you actually have enough money to build up that huge group. And you also have an understanding of like, what are the actual business models that can be used? And is there anybody who's going to find that large group as being particularly useful? So, you know, an example, if you target a particularly poor segment of the population and you don't have a good, so you get, you know, 500 million people in India, but they're people who live on less than a dollar a day and your product costs $5, then it doesn't matter that you got all of them. You don't have a business case to actually support this. Okay. So there, so there are dif- different traps in the different aspects of a of product management, yeah. business, tech, and, um, and UX design. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Um, but what would you actually uh, expect from a, from a great product manager? What's the typical profile of a great product manager? So probably the first thing that a great product manager has is they are very humble and they learn very fast. Um, because the reality is, is that with all three of these areas, um, a, a really great product manager, I think, has to have a grounding, a very solid one in one of these three areas. So they came as an engineer or they were a user researcher or a designer. Um I'm not so sure, honestly, you can come from a strong business background and become a good product manager, but please, someone out there, prove me wrong. (laughs) Um, And having this really deep understanding of engineering or having a deep understanding of design and user research and building upon that to actually learn the other two areas, so learning engineering and um, business or learning the design and business, um, the idea is that essentially people understand that you're never really finished. You should always be reading books. And the other thing that I think really helps with a really great product manager is curiosity. So I think um, people who have actually gotten product managers who really are engaged with their products, they can really see the difference because these product managers will dream about the product. They will you know, see things in uh, different patterns. They'll take information from completely different industries, fantasy books they're reading, um, new watches they've bought. And from every single one of these things around them, they'll figure out a way to actually improve the product they're working on because they're always thinking about how to make it better and how to actually understand better what the client's issues are and how the client actually understands things. Do you think Steve Jobs would have been a good product manager <laughs> or Elon Musk? <laughs> I think they have different skill sets. <clears throat> I think they have great product managers who work for them. Yeah. But, um, they, but they wouldn't be great product managers, right? The reason I'm asking this is because a lot of people working on product uh, aren't very humble or aren't, you know, they, they know what they know exactly what to make and they, um, uh, yeah, they want to put, uh, so they want to reflect themselves into the product. They want to make be able to see that this is because this is this product exists because of me, but what you're saying is that uh, uh, if I understand correctly, is that you should put less of yourself in and have having the customer fill fill the space with the with the product. Uh, they should define what the product is, not you. You should actually just be open for all the type of data and be very, really curious. So the the placement of of its you know of yourself in it should be limited. 
I don't understand correctly. Yes. So the idea is, honestly, the best products, um, you'll see the product manager in them because they actually provided that conduit, as you said, for the customers to be the person who has that perfect product for themselves. So um, I know a lot of people say that Steve Jobs never did any user research. That's totally wrong. <laughs> he actually did a ton of user research. Um, and so this is the thing that's really important is that uh, recognizing these customer values and then putting them into the product and solving things that way. Yeah, that's what makes a really great product manager. So many of the things that you actually have, like, you know, in terms of the iPhone or any of these things, there are people who are actually working on these who are the product managers for them. And they put every, they understand everything about how those customers work so that then they can actually make sure that it addresses the needs you have every time you pull out that microcomputer out of your pocket and you want to get something done. Steve Jobs actually did a lot of user research, like Tons. you said, but he, he actually did it in the natural environment. He actually observed people in their stores, mm-hmm. uh, like actually doing the actual behavior with the product yeah. instead of doing focus group that are, uh, that are artificial <laughs> before a product is ready. Um, so yeah, I think that's, yeah, I, I agree with you. Anyway, um, so why is this, we, we have been into it a little bit before, but why is this role so important for our current and future companies? Why should, why should this role be a central role in every company? So the one thing that product management does is it's kind of the role that goes across everything. So the problem is, is when you're actually starting a company, um, the CEO is there to actually make sure, okay, are we selling our company the right way? Are we positioning it? Are we in the market? Is my management team actually doing well? The engineering lead is actually saying, okay, um, do I understand what the problems are technically? Do I understand the feasibility of this? Am I making sure my engineers are happy? Do we actually have a good architecture? Um, the marketing person is worrying about, okay, how do we tell the story? How do we actually make sure that um, you know our product is positioned in a particular way? But no one's really thinking about the all three pieces together. So marketing may be focused on the customer and making sure they're doing things, but they're not really thinking about the technical feasibility. The engineers may think somewhat about the customers, and I'd love the engineers to think more about them, but the reality is they have their day-to-day of actually trying to make sure that things are feasible and workable and from a technical perspective. So the product manager is the person who sits across these entities. And so it's the only person who says, right, so for this product, I have to actually be like a marketing person and think about the customer, but I also have to be like an engineer and make sure that we're not doing bad technical decisions and making something that's not going to scale for a hundred thousand people in, you know, two months. But I also have to be a business person. I can't spend so much money that I'm going to bankrupt the company. So this is what the product manager brings to the table is that in early days you may have, you know, one, you know, like they say, a hustler and a engineer. And so the hustler is going out and like getting people to actually sell stuff. The engineer is going and, you know, making sure something is being built so that the marketing person can go show something. But it's the product manager that really makes sure like, hey, let's balance this. Let's make sure that we're actually not spending too much money or too much time, or we really understand what the customer is doing. So inside a company, the product manager is the voice of the customer. They're the one who can actually say like, look, this is my problem. This is what's most important to me. This is actually what I need to have. But when they're outside of the company, that product manager is the voice of the company. So it's like, hey, we can't, you know, we'd love to make everything gold lame, but unfortunately that's expensive and you guys aren't really willing to pay for that. So because of that, this is why we can't actually do this for this particular product at this time. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we have established that the product manager is, is not the CEO of the product and uh, he or she has to lead from the side, like um, a former boss of mine told me. Um, and But how do you actually manage, you mentioned data, like it's hard to, it's hard to, argument against data but how do you actually make these three very different types of people work together towards a common goal 
And this is why being a product manager is so hard because you have to be able to put your engineering hat in when you go and talk to the engineers and say, look, the customers are actually having this problem. And I know it's a difficult engineering thing for us to fix, but it's such a priority and it's such a blocker for them that we need to sit down and have a conversation about what are our options for actually making this work. And then when they go talk to the marketing people and the marketing people say, oh, but we like want to sell these fantastic things. They have to put on their marketing hat and say, I understand what you're looking at from the customer's perspective of how they see this. And so let's talk about how we actually talk about the problem for them. And then they have to go to, you know, the finance department and talk to them and say, okay, you know, we only have so much resources. We only have so much time. We have to get this much money in. So they have this discussions around pricing and they have to be able to speak in each one of those groups language. So they need to know enough about pricing that they can talk about, okay, what's cost plus pricing? How do we actually price for value? How do we actually, you know, look at the elasticity curves for this? But then they have to go talk to engineering and say, okay, let's talk about the number of connections we have to have concurrently for the database in order to support this. Let's talk about the middleware. And if the product manager doesn't have a good uh, fluid versatility in being able to speak the language of each one of these, then they're less effective at uh, convincing any of them. Because on the one hand, they're the consummate outsider, but they have to pretend um, like they're the chameleon and they blend in. So they can blend into the stand-up and they can blend into the marketing campaign. And they can blend into the finance department. Would it be easier uh, to be a product manager if you had a, actually, if you had the CEO uh, stressing to everyone in the company that the customer is actually what is uh, driving us or the customer is the king. Uh, I'm, I'm just seeing, um, you know, um, could, um, uh, would it be helpful to actually make an environment where you are very customer centric? Uh, not all companies are actually, but, but is that, would that do make it easier for the product manager to do his job? I mean, certainly the CEO of Amazon has done a good job of actually making sure his organization is extraordinarily focused on the customer. Um, but I think the thing that actually really helps product managers uh, in their world is this idea that, yeah, everybody's focused on the customer, but also everybody should be willing to accept data. And this is an issue is that if everybody's conversant in understanding how data works, whether it's marketing or finance or engineering, it makes a much easier life for the product manager because you can have these discussions about why is this data bad? Why is this data good? Why should we rely on this data? Why is it that we have some data, but we realize that this is actually not representative, and so we are taking a punt? But are there people uh, who are not accepting data? Yes, there are quite a large number of people who unfortunately think that it's better to go with gut feelings. And the question is, where do those gut feelings come from? And sometimes I will, you know, if we if we want to put percentages on this, let's say 10% of the time, you just won't have the data. It'll be ambiguous. You don't know. And so you have to take a bet. And depending on what kind of a company you're in, either you can take really ginormous bets because you're a startup company and you're like, you know what? We don't know. Nobody knows. If we take this, we might completely bankrupt the company, but what the heck? Yeah. But or gut, gut, feeling, large, gut feeling could be data. Um, if you're like uh, if you tacit can, data. Actually, yeah, exactly. So if you can actually explain where it comes from and convince, then that's one way to do it. But I'm saying like true, true gut where true, true, like nobody knows. And you're like, we have information. It's not conclusive. What should we do? Maybe 10% of the time. 90% of the time, your decisions should be able to be done from well-collected, well-argumented. And the problem is a lot of times those systems are not set up. So it's a question because the tooling wasn't done properly inside the application, so you can't see the quantitative analysis. Um, the way you actually did the interviews, you realized that actually the interviewer put them in a very awkward situation because they were interviewing the students about their sex lives in front of their parents. And so strangely, we didn't get the answers we were expecting. Um, 
you know, so you have to think a lot about like, okay, what could have gone wrong with this data and then be able to have intelligent conversations around that data so that then you can make decisions from it. So if there's a really data educated world and my friends who work at Amazon, they say Amazon is like that. So everything is about, okay, what does the data show you? How does this actually, you know, what makes us want to make this bet? What, why would you need humans if it's all about the data? Well, you still have to interpret the data. Yeah, but 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 uh, won't you get systems that can uh, interpret the data as well? So the fun thing about all this artificial intelligence that everybody seems to think is going to be great and take over the world, who makes the rules for artificial intelligence? Humans. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, now, yes, but uh, eventually maybe the artificial intelligence will make the new rules for artificial intelligence. But where did that logic come from? It came from humans in the first place. And so this is the problem is that artificial intelligence is a way for us to say, here is a way for us to interpret this data. Now, artificial intelligence doesn't necessarily understand culture rules. So it doesn't understand that actually... Um, you know, the concept of a, you know, in Norway, for example, if you're female and you walk home at 10 o'clock at night in the summertime, it's going to be light. And, you know, it's maybe, you know, not very, it's not dangerous. It's fine. You can just walk home at night at 10 o'clock at night because it's blazing sunshine. But if it's 10 o'clock at night and you're in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, you may be a lot more anxious about being female and walking home at night at 10 o'clock. But the the data, the data is there. From weather data, or and uh, and like uh, sun data, <laughs> but the perception um, may not be. So this is the thing: is that artificial intelligence can tell you, yes, there is this crime rate and this is this thing. But what does the crime rate really tell you? Does it tell you how the person's going to react? And so people can help you ac- actually understand how people are going to react. And also things change. So the issue is that a lot of artificial intelligence bases its information on previous existing data. And unfortunately, there's a fantastic book called Weapons of Math Destruction. And it talks about how a lot of these AI systems are trained on old data. And the problem with a lot of old data is actually it was made by humans and it's extraordinarily biased. So things like using data to actually do sentencing terms. Um, Unfortunately, the bias in the sentencing terms in the United States, for example, biases on race and socioeconomic class. And because of this, we end up with an algorithm which now has baked in that. And so it suddenly says, oh, well, you're a white guy who held up a liquor store with a gun. Great. Then you get probation for 30 days. Oh, you're a black person who did that exact same crime. Two years in prison. And this is really problematic. So we actually have to figure out how to clean up the data if we're ever going to have artificial intelligence that's going to be at all helpful. And so there's still a lot that humans can actually pick out that artificial intelligence may not be able to. Okay, but still. I look forward to the day where artificial intelligence can actually help us and like codify everything. But the reality is, is that for that to happen, there has to be a lot of really clean, good data, and it's going to take us a long time to get that so, kind of good, clean data. So you're saying that soft skills are becoming increasingly important. What I'm meaning by soft skills is that uh, the uh, the the um, uh, skill of empathizing, for example, to uh, you know, interpreting qualitative data, which, which which I think is pretty hard for artificial intelligence to do. But I mean, like the soft, the soft stuff. <laughs> do I do you agree, or am I? I think it's a combination. So yeah. the problem is that you can't have uh, all soft and have it all work. You can't have all hard and have it all work. The problem is you need both. So in the land of product management, you have to have the qualitative and the quantitative. So the quantitative helps point you to the place that you need to look in your data to say, hey, you know what? We find that all the users drop off on the third login page. I, why is that happening? And then you go and do your qualitative research to say, okay, well, we actually sat down with some people at their workplaces to see how they do the logon, and this is what happens. So they get the first screen, they go through, they go to the second screen, and then the third screen asks them for this code, and they have to actually run to another department, get that code, and then come back. And so a lot of people just say, oh, forget it, I'm going to actually do something else. And so they stop at that point. So 
only once you actually go in and see the whys and see the context as to what's actually happening, can you actually understand how to blend these things together to be a good product manager. So you can go and talk to the marketing people and say, stop advertising to people at conferences. They find it creepy. You need to advertise to people in meetup groups because that's easier. Something like that. So the best environment for a uh, uh, product manager is a data-driven culture? Yeah, I think it's a data-driven culture that's actually focused on the customer. Okay, so if, if, if you would make a, a <laughs> new, two new, new company, how would you, how would you, how, for, okay, there's two questions here. Let's say you were wanted to start a new company, how would you implement that? And the second question, let's say you're an, a, a CEO over an, of an, exist, an existing company, how would you actually make the transition from a um, gut-driven to a data-driven company? Let's start with the second question first. Okay, so as a CEO of an existing company to make the transformation to data-driven, yes, um, I would start with things like... Fire everyone? Uh, no, <laughs> start with... Do you have an analytics team? That would be question number one. Probably there is one hidden somewhere inside the structure. And take it sit down and have a chat with the analytics people and say like, okay, do you actually have... like is the inf- Is any of the information we have good? So find out the quality of the information you have. You may not be able to have that conversation because you're the CEO and you might be scary, but... Find someone who can actually have that conversation and say, is the data that we actually have in the company good? Maybe you'll have to actually hire a third party to come in and take a look at the data and tell you whether your information is good or not, um, depending on how scary you're... Yeah, because do you think they will answer truthfully? Uh, I mean... Depends on how much psychological trust you have in your company. Yeah. We're, we're assuming you have a very functional company because you're a wonderful CEO, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people don't want change, right? So, um, uh, well, at least they're resistant to change. People like change if it makes their life easier. Yeah, And so that's the question is that if you can basically get people to understand that data will make their life easier, then they will be up for it. If you make it scary and you say, I'm going to fire everybody because it turns out we only need four people to actually run this company, then that would be scary for them. So, okay. So you need to start with that. That is the, that is the goal of your quest as a CEO to make the, the lives of the, your employees easier. So how can you, do you understand? No, I mean like, why should they, why should they... Um, you, you have you have your structure, so you're a CEO, so whatever you says, uh, people should do. But you also have the culture, which is resistant to change. So, uh, but when you have, you need to have a quest or a story to tell. Why are you why are you doing this change towards a data driven culture? So why why are we doing this? I would hesitate to say that people are resistant to change because, for example, if you won the lottery, would that be a horrible change in your life? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, of course not. Like, uh, and, and it's, it's, but I think it's a rhetorical uh, question um, because people in you know are used to work in a certain way, and when that is threatened, their their power within the organization is threatened, and then they might resist either like directly or indirectly. That that's that's known to be happening. That's and I know that's happening. Exactly. So here's the thing, though, is a lot of times the reason why people are actually threatened or frightened of the way that new work is being brought to them is because of the way it's actually introduced. It's like what you've been doing for the last 30 years is wrong and you're stupid and I can't believe you've been doing that. But the reality is so is the CEO has been doing that same thing for 30 years and has been very successful with it. So the idea that you actually have to change 
has to be something that like at the senior management level, they say, you know, yes, we actually acknowledge that we need to change the way we're actually doing this. Then they actually have to say, okay, not only do we actually say this, we will actually do this. So we will have that awkward, uncomfortable, weird situation where we're going to try this new thing and it's going to be odd. So the question is, how do you actually get that to be an enjoyable experience for people? So, you know, tenet, basic tenet of game design. How do you design something that somebody else looks forward to what you want them to do? And the so there's a lot of fear taking out of this. So it's a lot of storytelling um, in terms of saying, hey, we're going to go to this great place. It's going to be really fantastic. And your life will be better because you actually did this. And so then the thing is, that, well, okay, if it's not threatening, you're not saying I'm going to lose my job. You're not saying I'm going to actually be kicked out or I'm going to have to do horrible things. Then people are much more open to trying to learn new things, to try new things. And they also know they're not going to be punished because this is one of the biggest problems um, that I think is uh, perhaps a cultural thing. Um is this fear of failure, this idea that, oh God, I tried something and I didn't do it right. Um, And that's a really big problem is that if people understand they're going to be punished because they did something wrong, um, rather than being told, hey, you know what, you're learning. And when you're learning, you're not going to conjugate the verbs the right way. You're going to use the wrong word. You're going to, um, you know, maybe say something that's going to be a little silly or a little funny. Um, And that's okay, because you have to have failure in the early days for you to be able to learn. And so this is what I think makes product managers very humble is because since they're always learning, they kind of always know how stupid they are and how much they don't know. Yeah, it's like Socrates. (laughs) What's his name? Wasn't it uh, the great Greek philosopher? said that the more I know, the more I know I'm stupid or... <laughs> the, more, the more I know, the less I know. Yeah, the less yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a good rephrase. Uh, anyway, so um, we had a guest uh, here a couple of weeks ago, um, Jan-Erik Kjerpset. He was, he's the CEO of Spiderbank Invest. And what he said to make the change in his organization was to actually involve everyone from the start. Mm-hmm. Like have, have, the, have the employees, have the people come up with the, the idea of making the change. You know, we have to do this to be able to survive the next years. So um, I think that was a good uh, that was a good uh, insight. But still, yeah, you have to you have to talk to the analytics guys, and then then what? So understand the analytics and making sure you actually have some good data. Then um, I think his point of actually involving everybody is a great idea. Um, in terms of actually then saying, okay, we have some data, we actually want to understand what people are doing. Then the next thing is understand really well what the problem is that you're solving for your customer. So maybe talk to your marketing department and say like, how do we actually talk about this to our customers? What do we actually tell them? And um, how do they talk to us about what's actually happening? Go to your support department and find out what are the problems people keep having? Um, how does this work? Um, go to your engineering department and God forbid, take your engineers out and make them go visit the client sites. Make them go talk to the customers. Make them see how the stuff is actually being used. Because there's a great thing that happens when the engineers start seeing how people use their code. Um, and I know a lot of engineers may be saying, oh, but I hate this and I don't want to talk to clients and it's awful. It's not awful. It's amazing because then you actually see what happens when you release that code, it goes over the wall and somebody's using it. And this whole idea of actually bringing the customer kind of to the center um, really makes it interesting because people have a connection with that customer. Now they understand, ah, this is, you know, Vikram and Vikram is actually trying to get this data into the system so that he can then make sure that these people can go on vacation. And wow, like, shouldn't we be helping people go on vacation? Like that sounds like a really good thing for us to be doing. Um, so getting that information together so that then everybody kind of feels like this is the story. This is how we're actually making things work for people. And then pulling that and saying, okay, well, in order for us to do this better, then we have to understand how not just Vikram works, but we also have to understand how Ingrid works. We have to understand how, you know, um, Bill works and so on. And then 
getting people to understand that actually having more conversations and more discussions to get more data to then drive and say, okay, this is how we actually understand data. This is how we actually look at it. This is how we analyze it and teaching everybody along the way so that it's like, you know what? You right now maybe had to spend a week trying to guess as to what was actually going on. Now we actually have a system where you can get the information you need to see if that piece of engineering code you wrote actually did make a difference and did fix things. And isn't it nice to know that you actually fixed something for somebody? Isn't it nice to know that, yeah, this decision worked? And isn't it nice to know sometimes that, hey, man, we made this decision, turned out totally wrong thing to do. But instead of getting fired for it or getting reprimanded, you're told, hey, good job. You learned something. Okay. So the real problem here is actually not being customer centric, because if you are customer centric, these things will come by itself. But the problem is if you're customer centric and you don't understand data, then you could be, again, you end up having biased data. You end up saying, well, I want the customer to want these things. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like if you're, if you're truly customer centric, you truly want to have the right data to be able to make the customer satisfied. Yeah, right. truly, truly should want that. Yeah, so that's actually the key here. Uh, the, other, the first question, you don't actually have to answer that because if you start your company, you can, you can start from day one to implement, to have practices to, to actually be data-driven. But let's talk a little bit about um, what you look for when you hire a great product manager. You, you, have, you have mentioned a couple of traits that a great product manager should have, but how do you actually find and hire a great product manager? Um, so to some degrees, it's easiest to go to where they hang out. So just like any other thing, if you were hiring engineers, you go to the engineering meetup um, for the product managers, you go find the product organizations. Um, you can actually take a look and see who's actually in the product organizations there. So there's Mind the Product, there's um, Product Camp, there's uh, Silicon Valley Product Group. There's a lot of different discussion boards, forums, etc. for people who are actually in product management. Um, and there's a lot of discussions happening. So Advertising in any of those places will at least give you one level up for actually hitting product managers. Um, a lot of times, though, especially in markets like Norway, there aren't a lot of product managers in the market. So how are you going to find them then? So then I would say, look for the people who are the engineers who maybe go give talks that are customer centric. Go look for the user researchers and the designers who are really obsessed about actually understanding technology. So they you know, were design people, they did visual design, but then they started to learn how to code because they wanted to understand how these designs would be implemented. Um, so looking for these people with these backgrounds of kind of deeper backgrounds, um, I think people who have uh, worked in like I, I think either it's B2B or B2C, domain expertise is one thing you can look for, but it's not the end-all be-all. So again, like I said, product managers have to learn and they have to be curious. So um, there are people who hire product managers who have known nothing about the industry that they're getting into, but the product manager will come in and be like, yeah, I'd love to learn about how you know ecosystems work for you know shipping parts worldwide. Fantastic. I'm totally interested in actually learning how this works. And they'll dive in and they'll start like reading all the blog posts and reading all the trade publications. Um, and they'll start learning. So you don't necessarily need um, industry specific knowledge. It can be helpful, but I wouldn't worry about it too much in terms of actually hiring a product manager because the whole idea is that they'll learn. Okay. Um, uh, is there a difference between the people that are actually doing the, the presentations and, and the talks and the 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 other that are like not that visible. Uh, often you just see a couple of names and you think, oh, they must be they must be the best. But there are actually a lot of people who don't like to do this but are really good. So in the product management world, one of the most important things you actually also need is presentation skills. So um, the people who actually lead the discussions, who actually say the controversial things, who go out and actually 
soundstage, that is actually part of being a product manager because you should be building presentations inside your own company to actually tell other people in other departments about what's going on and where the product is going and so on. So actually in this case, because presentation skills are a part of what actually makes a good product manager, um, it's actually more aligned than it is in potentially other cases where having presentation skills or talking to other people or leading discussion groups is not really a part of what makes them a good engineer necessarily, let's say, um, because to be a good engineer, it's a different skill set. And presentation skills are a bonus for for a, an engineer. But for a product manager, it's an inherent thing you have to be able to be doing because you have to constantly be selling. And so you're selling to finance, you're selling to engineering, you're selling to marketing. So you have to be able to present and you have to actually be able to bring groups together. Um, so actually, I would say that it's actually much more aligned than it is for potentially other positions. So communication skills are vital for this role. Okay. Um, I lastly, I wanted to ask you uh, about some good resources to to learn from um, to learn more about product management. Uh, you have mentioned some already, but uh, you, can you be a, a bit more specific? So the first thing I'd like to you know disclaimer: I am one of the organizers for Product Tank Oslo, and that is the first thing I want to actually tell people about. Product Tank Oslo is a monthly meetup by product managers, for product managers. We have different people come in and speak about the different skills you need for product management. And it is a fantastic local resource. We will feed you dinner and give you beer. For free? <laughs> so, for free. Oh, that's the best thing for Norwegians. Yes. So free beer, <laughs> free food, yeah. and come and learn about product management. Um, so check out the meetup group for Product Tank Oslo. It's fantastic. Um, but let's say you're actually not in Oslo and listening to this. It's okay. Product Tank is in over 150 different cities. So just check out the meetup group for your local city and you should be able to find your local meetup so that you can actually learn about product there. Um, online. Uh, so Product Tank is actually part of the Mind the Product uh, family. So Mind the Product is actually a, a product conference that runs twice a year, but it's also a blog and it has all of the conference videos um, from all the previous conferences from Mind the Product. And this includes people like Marty Kagan and Janice Frazier and Dan Olson and um, C. Todd Lombardo, all these people who write the books um, about product management and who actually have that experience. Um, another one I would check out is Miranov.com. So especially if you're in the B2B space and you're trying to understand how to do better product there, uh, Rich Miranov is kind of another one of the godfathers of product back in Silicon Valley. And he has a number of talks, uh, presentations, blog posts. Marty Kagan, obviously, I mentioned him before, um, Silicon Valley Product Group. Um, Laura Klein, Erica Hall for product management, uh, uh, user research, understanding your customer. Melissa Perry is another good one. So she's actually worked both B2B and B2C. Um, and actually, if you're looking for articles and you're just you know looking for something fun and amusing, um, content, foldingburritos.com. Um, that's a product manager who's out in Lisbon and he actually has a series of interviews. He has other people post um, and he's really good because he's had all kinds of crazy experiences. Cool. Uh, so, um, but um, the last, last question. So what is the best business book you have ever read? Or one of them? So I think actually the... Um, I, I work a lot in game design, obviously, with Six to Start. And so doing influence and things like that is very important. So there's a fellow named Robert Cialdani. Um, apologies if I'm mispronouncing his name. And he wrote a book called Influence. It's a great book. And he wrote another book called Presuasion. Also a great book. So those two are probably the ones that I would really recommend because as a product manager, a lot of your job is influence. And so understanding how to actually work with people and understanding their context and their frames and getting that context so that you can then help them, 
those would be the kind of two books I would say are the best. Uh, pre- psychology, like uh, practical psychology. Yes, very, very practical psychology. <laughs> uh, I think uh, the, I've re- also read the, those uh, books. I think the first one is obviously one of the best uh, books ever. The one, second one, not that good, but still still good. Um, uh, thank you very much, uh, Lisa, for uh, taking the time to, to chat with me about product management. Um, and I wish you well in your product management management endeavors in the future but you are now maybe doing something else you don't want to disclose it now maybe <laughs> no we're, yeah. we're not quite ready for prime time okay. um, but come to product tank oslo and maybe i'll tell you about it okay, perfect thank you very much